This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 364, and you're listening to The Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. This is it, right here. Uh-huh. Then you gotta add some of the little tricks. Ah, ah, you'll be swinging. Uh-huh. Right. It's The Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with influential voices in the music industry. Hey everybody, Daniel Glass here. Want to welcome you back to another episode of the Daniel Glass Show, only on Drummer's Resource. And just want to say happy February to you all. Maybe things are warming up a little here in the Big Apple. I'm not sure. It's still pretty cold and miserable. But we're over that hump. We're seeing a spring on its way. And maybe you're listening to this in the spring or the summer or the fall. But it's a New York winter. What are you going to do about it? I also, uh, speaking of New York, want to just mention that uh, we're about halfway full on the Daniel Glass 2018 New York Jazz Intensive that we're booking right now. And I've talked a little bit about this in some of my other podcasts. You can go back and check out Keep Calm and Learn to Love Jazz, previous episode, and if you're interested in that, go to danielglass.com to the uh, clinic slash intensives page and all the information is there. There's a cool promo video, features a lot of cool student testimonials from last year, along with a variety of other cool stuff, information, full itinerary, the whole nine yards. Anyway, let's hop in with today's topic. And the name of this particular episode is The Vanishing Drummer. And what do I mean by the vanishing drummer? Well, a lot of people these days express a lot of concern about the fate of drummers, drumming, and the drum industry in general. Uh, A lot of the complaints I hear is that, you know, music is made with digital technology. A lot of musicians don't use a real drummer. Everything is programmed. Everything is pro tools to death. And how are we going to fit into this world as drummers? And that's certainly a valid question, valid concerns. You know, as a result of this new way of making music, of course, there are fewer live gigs for drummers, fewer places where live bands even play. EDM is popular now, so when people go to dance clubs, they're really not even hearing live music. They're hearing music out of a box for the most part. Mostly all all of today's pop music, dance music, rap and hip-hop music doesn't even involve drummers. So what will happen to the drummer? Is the drummer disappearing as an art form? And, uh, you know, while I can't give you a definitive answer to those questions or those concerns, because believe me, I have them myself, what I can do is share with you some groovy little historical tales. And I think, you know, one of the things about studying history and evolution of music and drumming as I do, what I find is that in some ways it's comforting because you see things move in cycles. And what today may look like the end of the world, well, guess what? This situation has been faced before. And guess what? You know, we survived. Uh, The nation survived, the world survived, and, you know, drummers survived. So I want to sort of go back and take this all the way back to the 1920s and move forward. And we could see how some of these cycles of, you could say, boom and bust for drummers 
have already happened, have been around. And it's a very, some of these are very, very interesting stories. So let's go back to the 1920s and listen or think about what was happening at that time. What was happening at that time, of course, the Jazz Age, the 1920s was known as the Roaring Twenties or the Jazz Age. And that was because of uh, Prohibition, which was instituted in 1919, uh, and the world coming out of World War I, which was a hellish, hellish war, um, which happened in 1914 to 1918. Also around this time, 1918-1919, there was an, an enormous um, influenza epidemic that killed 50 million people, uh, I think just in the United States. It, was, it literally wiped out a large percentage of the population. We don't really think too much about that, but that was a huge tragedy as well. I mean, it was way beyond any kind of bad flu season that we have today. I was actually reading about it, um, and they literally said, you know, people were dying so fast and so suddenly that, you know, there were stories told of somebody getting on the New York City subway in Coney Island, which is all the way at the southern tip of Brooklyn, and by the time they got up to Harlem, they were dead on the train. Like, that's how fast they died from influenza. So, this epidemic hits around 1918, 1919. The other thing that hits is women, suffrage. For the first time ever, law is passed, amendment is passed, 1919 goes into effect, 1920, women can vote for the first time. So, women are experiencing liberation. All these bad things meet good things, come together with prohibition. Alcohol is banned, but the world wants to party. And so, you know, jazz as an, you know, well, so liquor, first of all, the, the, since you can no longer manufacture and transport liquor, somebody's going to do it. And the people who end up doing it to satisfy America's voracious need to want to drink, to want to celebrate after all these hellacious events, and women are now wanting to participate in going out to saloons and bars and speakeasies and all this kind of stuff, something that they never really were sociologically uh, able to maybe start doing. But all these things come together. The mob, of course, are the ones who start making and transporting and bootlegging illegal liquor, and in you know, in this enormous illegal party that you're having, of course, what kind of music do you want to dance to? Jazz music. Because it's illegal music, it's African-American in orientation and origin for the most part, and all of it is exciting, new, different, breaking barriers, etc. A lot of people say that the 1920s in many ways were like the 1960s in terms of uh, people trashing, you know, breaking through societal norms, uh, freeing themselves, and um, exploring life in new ways. So what does this have to do with drumming? Well, it was a good time for drums and drumming because jazz was really the first style to actively employ a drum set. And of course, times are evolving, and many drum companies are now taking advantage of this, uh, and the drum industry grows, and many, many more people um, are becoming drummers, And now, you know, instead of having to find a bass drum here and a snare drum there and a cymbal there and make your own kind of ramshackle hardware, um, companies are 
putting out entire kits. And of course, this has been going on for a little while, but it's with the Jazz Age happening, it's poised to take over. So drumming is doing good. It's growing. And this is all wonderful until we get to the end of the 20s. And several things happen at the end of the 20s that lead to a big crash, not only for the world, but to for drummers. The first of these is the um, the dawn, the the uh, 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 advancement of films. So, of course, movies all through the 1920s are silent. And, of course, we didn't call them silent movies because we had no pictures with sound, so they were simply called moving pictures. That's what they called movies at that time. And you have uh, drummers performing very different role than they do today. The, the role of the drummer in the 1920s was, was much more diverse than it is today. Today, those who played, I should say, drum set players, those who play drum sets primarily are there to keep time. That's what we do. We are timekeepers. But back in the 1920s, drummers were really still coming from several different places at once. So certainly there were drum sets, and drummers used them for timekeeping, primarily uh, to make people dance uh, in, in kind of dance settings. But there, there were also, in working in films, moving pictures, vaudeville, live stage shows, radio, which was, which was already big in the 1920s, um, none of these had picture and sound together, uh, well, vaudeville did, but they, they involved the drummer playing sound effects, sound effects, which, of course, we know as traps, short for contraptions. And so, literally, at this time period, pre-1930, drum set players were called trap drummers, and what we do behind a drum set was called trap drumming. And your setup would include, you know, all kinds of sound effects, to accompany what was happening on the screen or on the stage or on the radio show. Uh, All kinds of whistles, boat whistles, train whistles, bird whistles, uh, all kinds of blocks, uh, wood blocks and temple blocks, and um, all kinds of strange machines to imitate airplanes or imitate weather sounds, storms, or to imitate cars, lots of horns, uh, lots of crazy animal sounds, uh, in addition to birds, you had uh, dogs and, and bears and lions, and uh, uh, it was a, a fantastical potpourri of instruments that drummers were available to drummers in the catalogs. And in silent movie houses, you often had uh, eight, you know, multiple, uh, I don't know if it was eight per se, but anywhere from one to many um, folks that maybe they weren't even drummers. Maybe they were simply hired as sound effects people. Today, we might call them Foley artists. That's sort of the equivalent of who's working in the movies today, creating sound effects uh, in a studio, of course, for for film. Um, But this was a large part of many drummers' jobs. And, uh, you know, it was a, a large source of employment. Of course, films grew in popularity from the time they were first introduced around the turn of the century up until the late 1920s. And by the end of the 20s, you have these large movie palaces with huge orchestras and probably multiple percussionists slash sound effects people employed. Often they would stand behind the screen and uh, so they could see the action more clearly. And it's interesting in talking about this because in November of 2017, last year at the time of this recording, um, 
I was involved, I put together a group of percussionists to do exactly this. And we, we did a uh, performance slash clinic at the 2017 Percussive Arts Society conference in um, Indianapolis. And we played along with four distinct movie clips uh, and, uh, you know, silent clips. And we also um, introduced, we had a, one of the gentlemen who was with us, uh, Nicholas White, uh, brought a, an enormous collection. He has one of the largest collections of these uh, effects, these, these sound effects, uh, traps, as it were. So we had a great time doing that, and I learned a lot about this whole period. When you try to actually do some of this stuff, you realize how complex this was, how uh, intricate the work was, and how you know, a good sound effects person would be highly prized. Of course, the, the last function of a drummer I should mention at this time, in addition to the sound effects and the timekeeping on the drum set, would be a classical percussionist. And if you look at the drum sets of this period, most of them included uh, classical-type percussion, such as um, usually a mallet instrument, a glockenspiel, or orchestra bells, or maybe a, a xylophone. And often instruments like timpani or chimes uh, were also included, and often more elaborate setups than that. Uh, and much of the music of this period, if it had drum set type parts on it, it also could look very much like an orchestral part where you play a little snare and bass drum and you go play a little line on the glock, et cetera, et cetera. So this is what a drummer's life was like through the 1920s. With the introduction of first the Vitaphone shorts in 1926 uh, and then actual full-length movies in 1927, all of that changed rapidly rapidly. And I'd like to read to you right now, I'm going to read a a, a couple of paragraphs that are just really terrific, um, from the book The Making of a Drum Company, which is the autobiography of William F. Ludwig II. William F. Ludwig II was the son of William F. Ludwig, who with his brother Theobald started the Ludwig and Ludwig Drum Company back in the early years of the 20th century. And by the time we get to the late 20s, they have turned themselves into one of the most successful drum companies in the world. But what you learn is that what happened in the, ni- in the late 1920s, sound pictures, and, and the, the head of the paragraph is, is, sound pictures kill off vaudeville. So William F. Ludwig II, Jr., was a... Uh, he was a, a, a boy at this, at this time, starting to, you know, be involved in the company, work with his, his father. And uh, so here's what he writes. In, on October 27th, 1927, a monumental earth-shaking event occurred, which changed the lives and habits of millions of people around the world. The first talking pictures. Immediately, the picture show houses rushed to equip themselves with the electric image sorry, the electric magic, to produce talking films in their theaters and eliminate live musicians from the pit. From coast to coast, in the next 12 months, 18,000 drummers were thrown out of work. In a year and a half, 18,000 drummers were thrown out of work. The effect on the drum company, meaning their family company, Ludwig & Ludwig, was devastating. Sales plummeted. Of the 350s employees in the drum plant and tannery, of the 350 employees in the drum plant and tannery, half were discharged in the first year, in that first year. So 175 employees laid off, 18,000 drummers lost their gig. He goes on to say, 
I saw my first talking picture in 1928, Al Jolson in blackface as the jazz singer. Now, he talks about here how uh, revolutionary this was, where they were hearing the music coming out of the screen and seeing the words coming out of, of people's mouths and how shocking that was and how what a revelation that was. And if you can only imagine never having seen these things put together before on a screen. Uh, interestingly, the jazz singer, which was which is credited as sort of being the first full-length talkie, isn't really a full-length talkie. It is a silent movie until you get to the various musical numbers that Al Jolson, who was probably the, the most popular singer in America at that time, when you get to his singing numbers, all of a sudden it becomes a talkie. Uh, so, but very, very quickly thereafter, many, many films became talkies. So he says, you know, the first thing he noticed was how blown away the audience was. But then he says, the second thing I noticed was that the pit was empty. No lights from the music stands, no musicians, no conductor. And yet there was music. Where it came from, we didn't know. Came from the movie. Finally, in our seats, we were delightfully entertained through the next two hours with a feature film, a newsreel, and a comedy. But we drove home in silence. Mom sat in front with Dad, and who drove. Sister Betty and I were in the back seat. No one talked until... Near home, my father said, this is the end, and my mother began to cry. So he goes on to say there weren't a lot of school bands in the 1920s, so who was going to be buying drums? Well, not that many people. And in the end, of course, 1929, now just a year or two after that, what happens? Stock market crashes, Great Depression begins, and now nobody is thinking about buying drums. And so the poor Ludwig and Ludwig Drum Company, in its first iteration, had to sell to Kahn uh, the uh, you know brass. They, they manufacture horns and such, and um, and that's what led to uh, William F. Ludwig creating a new company that he could not use his own family name in. So they restructured and they started WFL. And so those of you who may have heard of WFL drums, that's when it started, is because of the Great Depression. I think they opened their doors in 1933, so a so few years later. Don't quote me on that. In any case, um, so, massive defeat for the drum industry. Woe is us. What's happening? Well, guess what? Five years later, <laughs> five years later, 1935, Gene Krupa comes along. He's a Slingerland endorser, different company, competitor to Ludwig. But what he's doing, primarily he's eliminated the orchestral and trap aspects of what a drummer did. And he is now focused primarily on a drum set, on timekeeping. He may have, he had sort of the classic uh, cowbell and woodblock type of thing going on. But not a whole lot more. The trap tables are gone from the drum sets, never to return. And it's a new world. But we survived as drummers. And of course, as economic times get better and the swing bands become more popular, Gene Krupa emerges as the first really big drumming superstar. Now, lo and behold, every, every, you know, there's a new lease on life. So, okay, so now drummers are booming again. And we move forward into the, the 40s. Uh, but, but first, another blow befalls the drum industry in the early years of the 1940s, uh, during, again, during World War II. And uh, 
those of you who know your history about World War II know that during the war era, uh, rationing uh, prevailed because the entire country was involved in the war. And mass manufacturing not being yet what it is today, and access to raw materials and transportation of raw materials not being what they are today, uh, all sort of items that, that, you know, from metal to fabric to chewing gum all had to be allotted towards the war effort. So I remember my father telling me he arrived as a refugee uh, from Hitler's Germany in the U.S. in around 1940, um, said you could not find chewing gum when he was a kid because at that time chewing gum did contain rubber and all the rubber went towards uh, the war effort. So similar uh, rationing was demanded on metal, and a rule was imposed on instrument manufacturers, and I'm assuming many other kinds of manufacturers, uh, that you could only use 10% metal in the manufacture and production of your instruments. So imagine now they were forced to make drum sets where the only metal parts, at least on the drums themselves, were the tension rods. So the lugs had to be made of wood. The hoops had to be made of wood, and um, I think even the mounting hardware on some of these had to be made of wood, and you have what were called the wartime drums. So uh, I think Ludwig had the rolling bombers, Slingerland had the victory drums, and, you know, these were, uh, uh, you know, they tried to give them patriotic names to go along with the war effort, Um, but in the end, although they're sort of wacky collector's items today. They were pretty terrible drums and really difficult to deal with. So another blow to the drum industry because of an outside source. I don't know how many drummers lost their gigs because of it, but it certainly probably for several years made it really hard to find drums or find good quality drums. So World War II happens. We move through World War II. Now economic times are good. Bebop takes off. And drum, you know, wannabe, young wannabe drummers have access to a whole host of stuff. The industry grows, does well. Um, Even better, the Beatles come along in the early 60s. Now the baby boom generation is coming of age. And really with, with, you know, Ringo playing Ludwig drums on national television, on the Ed Sullivan Show, Ed Sullivan Show, Ludwig and indeed the drum industry as a whole explodes. It's a really golden time. Of course, the Ludwig company has come through hell and high water going back to the 20s, had to sell their name, had a separate company, WFL. They regained the rights to their name. And then through, you know, a series of very lucky circumstances, uh, Ringo decides he's going to switch from Premier to Ludwig. He plays Ludwig on that Ed Sullivan show. And so what happens is the whole industry goes into overdrive. Ludwig in particular was the most popular brand in the world and would stay so until the early 80s because of Ringo and what he wrought, as it were. And um, the factory literally for a number of years was in production three shifts a day making drums. So 24 hours a day, their production line was cranking out the drums. And if you see a lot of Ludwig drums from the late 50s or particularly the 60s and into the 70s, they had this white um, white paint on the interior. You know, Gretsch would have the silver paint. Ludwig had white paint. And they sort of tried to sell this as it had acoustic properties 
special acoustic properties by by painting it. It would give the drum a certain kind of a sound. I'm not, you know, you could find in the catalogs the exact terminology and such that they use. But in reality, it was little more than white house paint, and they simply slopped it on there because they, the wood they were using on the shells, the interior of those shells was was, as far as I know, you know, not very. Uh, aesthetically pleasing to look at. And so they literally, on, on I have a drum set, I had a, a 60s blue sparkle Ludwig kit uh, from the 60s, and the house, the white paint on the interior is like streaked, you could see it running, you could tell just how fast they were throwing these things together. So, big boom time through the 60s, into the 70s, but what starts to happen in the 70s? The advent of technology, right? So, drum machines. Uh, Steely Dan, first band to start, you know, using click tracks, or at least to popularize click tracks. Uh, Synthesizers begin to evolve that are based on uh, electronic rhythm making. And by the time you get to the 80s, of course, now you have Simmons drums, and the whole world goes gonzo for technology. Electronic drum sets are the wave of the future, and click tracks are the new... um, you know, de rigueur in the studios, and and you better be able to uh, get with the program or you're out. And of course, you know, a, a lot of drummers fell by the wayside, a lot of great drummers uh, who grew up in a time where you didn't have to have that perfection of the click track, uh, got, you know, uh, had to make very, very radical changes. So I remember reading some interviews with Jim Keltner in drum magazines talking about now everybody had to have Simmons pads in the studio and they would spend all day with these very primitive, you know, or syndromes that would go do, 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 right? So this is in the, probably the late 70s. And everybody's trying to get these things to work and nobody could and getting them to interface with the, um, you know, the, the, the soundboard and getting the right amount of signal. But hey, that was the cool sound. So you had to have that. Uh, and then you had to be able to play with a click track. And I, you know, I sort of straddled that era as a drummer. Uh, when I came up, nobody used click at all. And by the time I was in my late teens and early 20s, moving to LA, starting to get into the music industry, I realized, man, this is really hard and I'm not prepared to do this. And one of the most you know, famous kind of casualties of, of that era was around 1985 when uh, Steve Smith, you know, on top of the world in the biggest band in the world, Journey, and uh, they have some shakeups. Uh, Jonathan Cain, you know, joins the band. They have all those big hits, Open Arms and uh, uh, Separate Ways and, and uh, um, yes, all those giant journey hits that aren't coming to mind at the moment. But you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they go to record a new album and suddenly they say, well, let's change the formula. Now we want to use click tracks and we want a different sound. We want a new sound. We want the sound of today right? This is 1985. And Steve and the bass player, Steve Smith and the bass player, Ross Valerie, go in and they're having a hard time with the click track. And they're kind of struggling to get that under their belts. Not that it's beyond their abilities, but what ends up happening is that's, they got fired from the band and uh, the band broke up the, the lineup and brought in some new players, the famous Randy Jackson, who would go on to, uh, 
be an American Idol judge. He was a bass player, got his start, and uh, his first sort of big break was was he replaced Ross Valerie and Journey. And Mike Baird, who was a f- famous L.A. session guy, therefore could handle all the click stuff, was brought in to replace Steve. Of course, what in- inevitably happens when you mess with the formula is it doesn't work out as well, and that ended up being the end of Journey for quite a few years, uh, That the album that came out then. So it, But, you know, Steve talks about that was a really rough time for him, and uh, many, many other drummers as well. And so, not only are we dealing with all that stuff, but, you know, now, as time moves forward, we're now threatened with the dawn of hip-hop and rap, which also started in the, in the late uh, in the late 1970s or mid 70s, um, and at first it's about sampling, uh, but it quickly becomes about programming. And programming, as the 80s move forward, really becomes an even bigger threat than perhaps any threat we have faced as drummers, because now you can simply do away with the drummer and replace the drummer with a machine or create a reasonable facsimile. I don't want to offend anybody because as we all know, you can't really replace a drummer with a machine. But what what that then led to was a lot of drummers, again, being put out of business. Uh, you know, we'll just program it. And it began with styles like rap and hip hop that were based on program drums and other styles like rock or country or pop um, did not do these they did not they still used real instruments but what's happened is as technology has become more pervasive in society become more pervasive in the music industry as rap and hip-hop have become probably the most popular styles now on a pop level some of the world's biggest artists are rap and hip-hop and as rap and hip-hop have just blended with every other style of music nowadays programming is almost the, you know, that's, that's commonplace. That's the norm. That's the default. And real instruments, including drums, whether they're electronic or not, have been totally pushed out of many styles of popular music. They're just not even used anymore. So I would say, again, most uh, pop, you know, what's called pop music these days uh, is, there may be some drums in there, but they're so uh, they, they, they either are programmed 100% or they have been so manipulated that they sound programmed. And that's a whole nother conversation to have. I'm going to do a whole podcast about sort of what happened to the music business and is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Um, and what happened to the, to the whole concept of, you know, what is music, what is considered music these days, right? Which is a sort of a big question, but we'll leave that to another podcast. I'm talking specifically about the role of the drummer in the music industry. Uh, So, you know, here in the late 80s now, once again, people are freaking out. This is the end of the world. We're done. We're not needed anymore. We're easily replaced. Older drummers, you know, are no longer able to to hang. But as we move into the 90s, uh, there is, to some degree, a backlash. And whereas the sound of the 80s was a very processed sound, was a very... Um, you know, uh, if you think of all the new wave bands, everything sounded electronic and sounded, you know, technical and sounded like it was made by a robot. You know, all of those, uh, uh, you know, 
new wave bands, as it were. And that sound, that electric, electronic sound was very popular. As we move into the 90s and you sort of have this backlash with grunge, you know, and, and I should say that even before grunge in the world of rock, things like gated reverb on the tom-toms, you know, was, was sounding, was, was adding to it. And there was this sort of new kind of sense of perfection that was demanded because now everything had to be click perfect. And so, you know, if you've been in the studio, sometimes it feels like the fact that you play perfectly with a click is really the most important thing, not that you sound like a human being, you know, which we still ideally would like to do. But drummers were trying to figure out how to do both. And that always is a, a complex question when you're working with a click track. How do you make it sound like there is no click track there? So in these early years, it was much more difficult. Uh, today, you know, younger people grow up with clicks. They, it's like a second nature to them. It's like they have a, a you know, a, they've, they've grown gills so they can breathe underwater, whereas us older folks were not, you know, don't have those, that skill set. But, uh, in any case, this idea of replacing the drummer, well, now there's a backlash in the 90s with the evolution of, of grunge. And things go back to a more stripped-down, live sound. Um, people uh, go back to using live instruments. I remember in the, in the 90s, there was maybe a bit of a renaissance of, of drums. You know, there were all these power toms and things in the 80s. In the 90s now, it was getting back to a more... Um, you might say traditional type of sound. I'm thinking about Nirvana and Pearl Jam and and you know the Seattle bands and and also the 90s was a time when there were a lot of you know it was the end of the century, the fin de siècle, as you would say in French, and there were uh, a lot of sort of remembering previous styles of the 20th century. So ska had a resurgence, third wave ska with bands like Sublime and No Doubt. Um, and, uh, uh, of course, my band, Royal Crown Review, sort of spearheaded the retro swing uh, resurgence that happened in the 90s. So, uh, you know, the Stray Cats in the very, uh, well, the Stray Cats had already done that with Rockabilly in the 80s. But there was sort of a lot of looking back. And, of course, those sounds were not electronic, were not uh, programmed. All of those bands used a live drummer. Uh, in addition, I think that you know, very early on in the game, rap artists and hip-hop artists realized that if they just went up on stage with a microphone and a guy working a turntable, that it was awfully hard to stretch that into a show that would hold people's attention. There was not a lot of entertainment value there other than one dude or a couple dudes or some dancers sort of parading around on stage. And so, you know, soon after, as rap and hip-hop evolve and, and get bigger, they start bringing bands on for their live concerts. And so there becomes sort of a bit of a balance there where even though maybe no live drums are used in the production of a lot of that music, uh, there, there at least is work for drummers playing with a lot of those artists. And the same goes for pop artists. You know, there might be, uh, you know, somebody like Katy Perry uh, maybe there's really not too much drumming per se on her records or anything that sounds like a human being playing drums, but certainly when she performs live, even if there's a lot of tracks and, uh, you know, sampled, uh, loops and things in the background, there are generally live musicians. So in terms of 
you know, work for musicians, for drummers, well, maybe there's, there's a loss of, of, uh, you know, um, of employment in, in studio work because it's now being programmed, but the live thing continues. So, you know, it's this sort of back and forth, uh, boom or bust, you know, kind of times. And I think that in a lot of ways, it's always been difficult for us. It's always been difficult for the drum industry. I think certainly we are in a tough time today here in 2018 when I'm recording this, because as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, the exposure of young people to real instruments is harder and harder to find. You know, you don't, you see fewer and fewer examples of live bands in your community. Or when you go to a concert, there may be a drummer on the stage, but things are so process sounding that really what it sounds like is what you can do, what you can create on GarageBand on your computer. And the fact that, you know, people now go, instead of going to engineering school, or instead of going to music school, they go to producer school, quote unquote, DJ school, you know, where what they're doing is learning how to program or learning how to, you know, spin knobs and make samples. Uh, that, that's what the exposure to music, that's what the training in music is, as opposed to necessarily sitting down and taking the time to master an instrument. But on the other hand, there's quite a few examples, you might say, of other things happening where drumming continues to bubble up and present itself in interesting new ways. So one of those phenomenon of the phenomena of the last, uh, you know, maybe 10 years or, or even less is sort of the phenomena of the, 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 U, the YouTube drummer, you know, somebody making drum videos online that then go on to become spectacularly uh, watched by, by enormous numbers of people. And what's really interesting is uh, I was just talking, I just came back from the NAMM show. This is February, and of course the NAMM show is in Los Angeles in January. I was talking to J.C. Clifford from uh, Drum Tax, who's also my partner on the Daniel Glass Jazz Intensive here in New York City. And he was telling me that he was organizing artist signings and he uh, at, at the booth that Drum Tax were at, and he uh, put out the word to all of his social media saying, who do you want to see at the signings. And he said the biggest names, uh, or the, the names that got the most votes were YouTubers, were drummers that, you know, had garnered a huge number of fans on YouTube. So while this is a different way of getting the word out about drumming, uh, I certainly think that it is a good thing in that it does indeed get the word out about drumming. And the people that are performing on YouTube are doing incredible, incredible things behind a drum set. I mean, it's it's astounding to see how the world of YouTube and the internet in general have allowed drum, especially on the chop side, right? Drumming to progress into kind of an X Games almost, as it were. But this is what is driving and inspiring young people to pick up drumsticks and buy drum sets today. So if that's what's happening, then I say good. That is a good thing. And I think that in general, and I'll wrap this up now, but there there will always be a place for drums. There will always be um, old music because I play, you know, traditional style. I don't want to say old music. That sounds derogatory. But because there will always be a place for 
older music. Uh, I just recently did a whole bunch of TV uh, spots for reality TV shows. And this guy loved me because he was like, well, do like, let's do like a surf thing. Well, let's do a Gene Krupa thing. Well, let's do a Bo Diddley thing. Let's do a, a, a greasy kind of a swing thing. Like, let's do a film noir kind of a thing. And, you know, because of my experience in this, I don't just do a reasonable facsimile. I make it sound like the real deal. And we put those feels together with, he was a guitar player, and we made a lot of really great, uh, really cool, interesting music, um, you know, that hopefully will be used as cues in, uh, in reality TV shows. Now, this is commercial work I'm talking about, but the fact that I have this particular skill set really uh, has helped me to get work in a whole bunch of different environments in the last few years. And, you know, Whereas a lot of people say, well, gigs are drying up and disappearing. I live and work in New York City, and I there are a ton of gigs here. Uh, I play jazz, and that's what's going on in New York. And, um, you know, even within the jazz thing, my understanding of a lot of these classic styles that are different than sort of really modern bebop or straight-ahead jazz really helped me to get hired by people that are looking for these, these very kind of specific skill sets. So I think... You know, this is another reason, people, why I'm always going on about why it's important for all of us to learn more about classic styles of drumming, because these things are not going to go away. You know, when you hear classic-sounding rock and roll or classic-sounding swing, these are so iconic. They are a part of the fabric of our world today, and people are always going to want that flavor in their music. You know, similarly, if you specialize in making your drums and you're playing sound really 70s, now there's a huge scene for garage, you know, huge kind of new garage band scene. There's new bluegrass scenes. You know, there's all these amazing scenes of music out there that um, are eager to have drummers and drums on board. So I think while, you know, especially for those of us who have been around and seen a lot of changes in the industry, it's, it's difficult to not just want to throw up our hands and say, man, the sky is falling and it's going to be the end of us. But if we look cyclically at the history of our instrument, you know, we've faced these kinds of challenges before and we've survived and we've adapted. And that's what we do as musicians and that's what we do as drummers. We're really on the front lines, people, right? We are on the front lines. We are the ones to be cut first. We're the ones, you know, we're the luxury item, as it were. And so, you know, I, I, I again say that it is incumbent upon us to be flexible. I wish I could have a conversation with some of these coal miners in West Virginia who, you know, are crying, and rightfully so, about their industry disappearing and about how they feel deserted and, and you know, where is someone to take care of them and all these kinds of things. But, you have to look forward to a time when we are not going to use coal anymore. It's the writing is on the wall. So what are you going to do? Sit there and try to make the world, the entire world, you know, change or not change so that you can have your job? Or are you going to roll with it and figure out some way to continue to move forward? You're going to retrain yourself. Are you going to come up with some new idea? And I think musicians, and I'd say drummers in particular, have been incredibly inventive and adaptive over the years, over the last century plus, as the industry changes and our job description changes and what is expected of us, what is demanded of us changes, we have stepped up and we have adapted. So even, you know, you old fogies like me out there, 50 plus, 
uh, this is, you know, we always have opportunities. There, there are things maybe limited, but there are always opportunities. And so I encourage you to, you know, try to f- continue to figure out a way to make what you do fit into what is happening. And again, you know, I've talked about this before. If it's not happening out there and nobody's calling you, then you got to make it happen for yourself. And I'm going to do a whole another podcast about entrepreneurial issues for drummers because that's something I talk with a lot with my students and people that hire me for consultations. And I think it's uh, there's some good information we could share about that. So I'm going to put it down for today. I really appreciate, as always, you listening and uh, your feedback is entirely appreciated. Uh, there is a master list of all the episodes of, of the Daniel Glass Show. So if you've missed some of them or this is your first one, just go over to danielglass.com and literally click on the podcasts tab and you'll see a master list of all the different episodes that I've done. There's a variety of stuff there. So I hope that you have been inspired or informed by this podcast. And uh, I hope you will join me again on the Daniel Glass Show on Drummer's Resource. Resource.